Great question. I think I'll answer it um, in a political way, but it's not <laughs> not in a political way, really. I, it's what I truly believe that I think you cannot all of it together. You have to understand. So everything from the material composition, which I think you're referring to, say the atomic or molecular um, composition, all the way up through the macro structure. So my research group and my research is focused on understanding the links from the nanometer scale up to the meter scale or the full organism um, or full application. However, I never forget and I try to bring to my students never forgetting kind of the importance of the atomic and molecular structure, but even below the nanometer length scale. Um, that's a great question. Um, so at, at the heart of it, um, there are different or what we're learning is there are different compositions or even slightly different structures. If so, if you want to capture prey versus climbing, there are some different ways to balance the, the three components of adhesion. Like I said, the surface, the near surface material properties and the geometry in nature, like the chameleon or the spiders, does this in different ways relative to a gecko. So they will use very similar mechanisms often. So van der Waals forces is often the, the bond that is most commonly used in nature. It doesn't have to be always that bond, but it's very commonly used just because it's so ubiquitous. But how they distribute and use those van der Waals bonds is, is a little different between say the chameleon and the, the spider and the, the gecko. In this podcast, I'm sharing my passion and curiosity for soft robotics, where we share inspiring stories about the work we do and how we can push the limit. I am Mara Dweeney, and this is Soft Robotics Podcast. Support for this show comes from Science Robotics Journal. I really find Science Robotics to be a great resource for reliable and tangible research where we can really push the limit of the science we do in robotics. Great way to stay up to date with the published article is checking out the released monthly issue. All the links will be included in each episode description. We will also happen to have a regular conversation on the most published science robotic articles where also you can contribute with your question and thoughts about the research. Thanks Science Robotics for sponsoring Soft Robotics Podcast. So maybe I would like to ask you first, how would you like to define yourself for people, maybe first time listening to you, how would you like to define yourself? Sure. Um, so I'm a professor in, of polymer science and engineering at the University of Massachusetts Amherst um, here in the, in the United States. And um, my, my research group focuses on bio-inspired uh, materials and bio-inspired mechanics. Um, I also co-direct the Center for Evolutionary Materials um, here at UMass, um, along with Duncan Urshik, um, a biologist, and I'm also the editor-in-chief for the journal Soft Matter. So maybe I'll ask you first, if we look to the material development so far, what do you think may be missing feature when it comes to nature? You focus already in adhesion and fraction, which we'll cover later. But if we talk your perspective, what's me missing when it comes to material development compared to what we have in nature? Maybe mysterious or it's hard to understand how we can have this feature in material. Um, so I, I, I think you were asking, I, it was a 
what is missing in bio-inspired materials yeah. Yeah. development. Um, so, yeah, that's a great question. I, I really appreciate that. Um, so bio-inspired materials is something that I've worked on for um, quite a while now. It's almost coming up on 20 years of working in that particular area. And one of the things, and I, and I didn't learn this until um, after working in it about six or seven years, but one of the key parts of bio-inspired materials research is understanding how nature arrived at certain material solutions and understanding that there is a long history of evolution and constraints and trade-offs that nature is um, taking into account in selecting different different solutions and those solutions are not necessarily optimal solutions so from an engineer or a, a physical scientist point of view i think you also always have to remember and recall and try to understand that evolutionary development um, in order to inform your understanding from the physical sciences and engineering sciences point of view of those materials um, and that really helps to provide a a physical solution or a synthetic um, analogous material that can serve a lot of different technologies mm -hmm. I think that to also focus on the mechanics understanding and maybe I want to ask you if we speak about the exhibiting intelligence or maybe the features and material, which one do you think may be the way to go for material? Is this the material development itself or the architecture or morphology? Which one? Because I think in nature also there's interesting example how morphology can give us interesting features like delay damage multi-material in a certain combination to delay damage, for example. For you, which one do you think may be more interesting to take advantage of the morphology or maybe the material level, or maybe both of them? Which one is significant to you? It's a great question. I think I'll answer it um, in a political way, but it's not, <laughs> not in a political way, really. I, it's what I truly believe that I think you cannot, all of it together, you have to understand. So everything from the material composition, which I think you're referring to, say, the atomic or molecular um, composition, all the way up through the macro structure. So my research group and my research is focused on understanding the links from the nanometer scale up to the meter scale or the full organism um, or full application. However, I never forget and I try to bring to my students never forgetting Kind of the importance of the atomic and molecular structure but even below the nanometer length scale um so i, I think nature is really does a, a great job of of using limited elements and limit limited molecular constructs to develop a rich array and rich library of microstructures and mesostructures to enable different functions so i i i'm particularly interested in that myself um, however, you cannot forget any of that, those build, compositional building blocks. Um, they, they do play really critical roles in enabling the definition of those microstructures. Um, so, so that's the, at least the direct answer to your, to your question. Um, with that being said, I think focusing on the, the morphology and the, the microstructure of different natural materials is a really powerful avenue right now because it allows us to think about developing more sustainable processes and how to use materials in different ways and reconfigure them um, to make a more sustainable materials world.
Mm-hmm. So maybe going back to adhesion and friction, you have been now like more than a decade you have been working on that, so many years. If you get us about that, the first step in design or in inspiration, because uh, can you take us the first step, what significant part when you look to, for example, the gecko or beetle, what is the significant part mechanism to understand adhesion or friction, for example? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, and yes, I have been working in area of adhesion and friction for quite some time. And um, unfortunately, I still don't understand it all. Um, <laughs> it's a really complex um, phenomenon. We, one of the things that makes this complex is that we all experience adhesion in all different ways. Um, you know, from just working around the house or in your office um, to being an engineer, there's all kinds of different ways that we experience adhesion. And that makes it a concept or makes it difficult for us to share words that convey our experiences or what we want to accomplish with adhesion or how we want to use it or minimize it. So that terminology and shared definition is actually one of the um, difficult things in the field of adhesion. With that, with that being said, um, one of the, you're asking for a key concept. Um, one of the key concepts that I, I believe is, is foundational to a lot of our work is realizing that the forces that develop across an interface are not only controlled by the specific bonds at that interface and the specific chemistry of, um, that enables those bonds at the interface, but it's intimately connected to the um, material properties, um, for example, the mechanical properties far away from that interface, as well as to the shape of that interface and the geometry. So you have to, you can, it's very difficult to separate out the geometry the far field material properties, so like the mechanical properties far from the interface and the specific bonds at the interface. A lot of people in the, that work on adhesion only focus on particular parts of that problem. And you have to look at it as a whole, I think, in order to be able to use adhesion or control adhesion the, the way that you want to. Um, this is seen in a lot of examples that you were just naming also in nature, um, that nature uses and recognizes the full system um, so I think this is really one of the important concepts um, to understand uh, for adhesion. Mm-hmm. And friction, when it comes to friction as well, how do you see also morphology and materials? Can you give example, uh, concrete example for friction here? Why it's hard? Yeah. Um, so, first of all, um, one of the difficult things of friction I see friction as um, just one particular subset of understanding adhesion. So adhesion and friction to me is about controlling the transmission of force or energy across different interfaces. And friction is just one, um, what we typically call friction where you're kind of sliding two surfaces against each other. It's just one instance. Now, one, great example of where where we use friction um, or where we see friction is the example of a gecko. Um, a gecko is the largest um, organisms today that uses adhesion or friction to climb. And um, it uses certain structures, not just, not just the nanoscale and microscale hairs that we call setae to engage a surface. But one of the things that our research identified many years ago um, was the importance of tendons 
that extend from the skin all the way to the bone and the stiffness of those tendons um, and the role that those that stiffness plays in distributing the forces across all of the hairs or the setae on a gecko's foot. So it's this is a good example, I think, when you're looking at friction, it's not just the roughness or the, the surface topography, the surface features of these little hair, hair-like um, arrays, but it's really the whole connection down to the tendon that allows you to, to allows the gecko to engage um, with such high-performing um, friction capabilities. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll ask you the adhesion because you already focused maybe in gecko, but when we look to evolution like uh, or nature, chameleon and spiders, they have the adhesion to, to catch prey. Is there any difference here when it comes to adhesion properties? I'm just curious if there's differences here. Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, so at, at the heart of it, um, there are different or what we're learning is there are different um, compositions or even slightly different structures. If So if you want to capture prey versus climbing, there are some different ways to balance the, the three components of adhesion. Like I said, the surface, the near surface material properties and the geometry. In nature, like the chameleon or the spiders, does this in different ways relative to a gecko. So they will use very similar mechanisms often. So van der Waals forces is often the, the bond that is most commonly used in nature. It doesn't have to be always that bond, but it's very commonly used just because it's so ubiquitous. But how they distribute and use those van der Waals bonds is, is a little different between say the chameleon and the, the spider and the, the gecko. Um, for example, in the in the gecko, a lot of its time is actually spent fairly stationary, um, whereas um, in the in a spider, it may be trying to use its its web-like features to capture something very dynamic, and so some of the time scales and the the, the rate scales involved in the materials have to be a little different, and they they will mm -hmm. change the structure a little bit differently for those different functions. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll ask you again about maybe the the failure in adhesion and redundancy and, and maybe climbing. And I think well, one of the episodes we discussed, uh, we discussed with other researchers that the, if the spider, for, not the spider, but for example, the gecko just fail, uh, the gecko inspired design, maybe if catching a like a design inspired to pick something, um, if there's failure, it's okay, but the climbing, if there's failure, there's no redundancy here. And I want to ask you when it comes to different scenario, the adhesion and redundancy, whether climbing or catching something, how do you see the component here, adhesion and redundancy, was the objective of the goal? Yeah. Um, so redundancy, um, redundancy is, is used both obviously in nature and in, in engineering. Um, and in the context of adhesion, um, you know, redundancy is, is quite important. Um, so I, I'll speak to when you were asking this question, it, it brought to what I, what I was thinking about is some of the principles that we learned when we were studying the gecko for climbing. So we had developed a mathematical theory and actually proposed it um, as a guiding theory for um, understanding the force generation in adhesion for climbing for the gecko. And um, before we even 
made a lot of measurements on it um, to test it, we put forward this theory. And one of the one of the critical assumptions behind that theory was that the interfaces will um, be designed in an unstable mode. Um, so they will not be a stable interface. That means it can, once it starts failing, it'll fail very quickly. And one of the important ways of learning how to engineer around that principle is that you need redundant um, um, attachment points. And so the gecko does that obviously through having very uh, many different uh, toe pads, right? That they're gripping every surface with. Um, although experiments are done to show that they can hold themselves up with one, one toe pad maybe or one finger, they have many redundant, um, they're almost over-designed in many ways. Um, so it's, it's redundant there in terms of climbing. Um, the other thing to keep in mind, I think that's really interesting in terms of guiding this unstable um, formation. And one of the things that is not really used today in many engineering adhesion applications is that for at least the get-go, and I won't comment on spiders right now in regards to web formation, um, if that's what we're talking about, but in terms of the get-go, they're very dynamic with their with their um, attachment points. So even though it may look like the foot um, or the, the toe pad is stationary, they are changing the tension um, and conformation behind um, that uh, attachment very actively and, and dynamically. And that, that changes the history of the material, um, which we know for, you know, really all polymer materials, history is important and rate is important. And, that, and I think that's a really interesting way of, of maybe building in redundancy also, is to shift the tension and shift the weight distribution actively um, behind it. So it builds in a redundancy of a, a different attachment point. So I, I think it's really important um, and we just have to continue to learn as, as nature has used um, how, to, how to engineer properly. Maybe I want to ask you exactly what's still maybe hard for you to understand after many years. Maybe still the challenging point in scaling, maybe in inspiration from the Gecko, for example, or adhesion here, or friction. What is the critical point here for you? And also for researchers in the field. Yeah, so what is missing still? What is difficult to understand? I think that's the question. And... Um, yeah, what is missing, I think, um, is how to, well, I will say um, there's a lot missing, first of all. Um, <laughs> one of the things is, and I'll come back to the, my opening words, is how to, how to describe our desire in terms of control of adhesion or what needs to be satisfied. We, we are trained as scientists or engineers to think about stress and managing stress. That's a concept that, you know, we have years of, of training, of learning how to do that from a materials point of view as well as a structured point of view. However, when you work on adhesion, it's not just about stress. In fact, many times stress is not the, the, the determining point for failure. Um, and so that instantly puts us at a disadvantage of knowing how to phrase the problem. So actually describe the problem with when, a, let's say a roboticist wants to design a robot to climb, 
understanding all of the terms or defining the terms to accomplish that climbing, um, we, we don't know how to do that very systematically right now. Um, and so to me, this is an opportunity where a lot of the advantages of, of machine learning and artificial intelligence can help teach us like what are the different parameters um, that are being used and utilized to, to accomplish a certain task with adhesion or that requires adhesion. Um, so I, I think it really comes down to defining that problem. A lot of the concepts or parameters that we traditionally learned about as engineers do not translate directly um, to the to the world of adhesion. Um, so you're constantly um, trying to understand the, the full picture of what parameters control attachment and release. Um, I, I still that's a that's a huge problem. Um, as much as we can understand very well-defined problems in adhesion, the, the complexity of real-world applications is, is still too much. Yeah. Maybe I want to ask you a quick question here in the design process, because you mentioned maybe machine learning and how it may be added in the design process. And the other side, maybe you have intuition in this design. If you came up with design, maybe illustration or maybe intuition beyond what we maybe you saw already. How do you see the two spaces here? Intuition to come up to come up with the design, and the other side that I, I think it's interesting. Of course, how we can maybe machine learning can come up with new generated designs that can solve certain problem. I know there's maybe some some challenging problem, but from your experience, how do you see the two spaces here? The intuition versus the d designs could become up with generative methods here. Yeah, I I, I think that's a I mean. I think, I think for the very near future, uh, even the extended future, um, machine learning and artificial intelligence and intuition and creativity and scientific process will be so interrelated and interdependent. Um, and, you know, I, I see machine learning as a tool. Um, we're not actively using it very often in my group right now. I'm trying to, to get a, a find the right problems for me to, to work on there. But I see it as a tool where we, we have a, a current development project where we are starting to explore this. And the data that we are capturing, we, we can see things, um, and it's related to adhesion, we can see things, but we don't understand all of the connections. And so we're starting to talk with computer scientists to start to see if we can identify some of the key descriptors. And what we believe um, as scientists is that we need to make understand those descriptors to then translate them to the wider principles which then can impact other fields so i i think that intuition um in terms of design is going to do this is going to do the same thing we have to be able to take what we learn from certain um machine learning say projects or outputs and how to translate that into other fields um, that we want to work on or that or that may be impacted. Um, and then that will guide our intuition, if you will. Um, so it's all about using that input. And I mean, I think the human aspect of that is, is critical, um, you know, translating um, and learning how to communicate and um, across engineering disciplines and obviously um, 
beyond engineering applications. So the machine learning is just a tool providing us information mm -hmm. that we then have to interpret and use to guide our intuition. Mm -hmm. Since you also work in mechanics, maybe I want to ask you, there's maybe it's something in the scope of the adhesion friction was counterintuitive. Or maybe sometimes we can't get explanation why this behavior is happening or I don't know if you have this moment of maybe counterintuitive or surprising and maybe it's hard to explain from a mechanics perspective. Do you have this kind of scenario happen? Um, yes. And I mean, we ultimately did describe it with, um, with mechanics, but I have a, you know, the example of um, some of the technology on adhesion, the GAC skin based technology was really surprising to us at first um, that a lot of the materials that developed the strongest forces of adhesion were the stiffest materials. And this is, this is really non-intuitive for many of us, right? We, whenever we think of something sticky around the house or in the office, it's really soft, right? And almost sometimes described as gooey or viscous. And, and so, um, and then everything that we were doing in our labs when we were trying to understand how the gecko works and, and taking inspiration from some of these systems was pointing us um, to the stiffest materials. Um, mechanics ultimately allowed us, once we started to understand how to frame it and put it together, um, mechanics allowed us to understand that, that the stiffness allowed us to um, extend the area over which we distributed forces um, in, a, in a new way. Um, but, it, but it was quite surprising. Um, I'm sure there are lots of other examples too in the, in the research that we've um, worked on over the last many years, but that, that's the first one that came to mind. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you maybe about the multi-material when it comes to the design. How do you see the multi-material integration to get something interesting from multi-material? Do you have any uh, maybe example when it comes to adhesion if we use multi-material to get interesting behavior, for example? Um, yes. Um, so there are um, numerous examples, I'll say, in adhesion where you have to rely upon um, different compositions of materials as well as different structures at different length scales. So the, the GAC skin technology that I've already referred to um, naturally um, is built upon a composite of where we combine um, really soft elastomers like um, polydimethyl siloxanes or PDMS um, silicone elastomers or polyurethane elastomers um, along with very stiff and strong um, carbon fiber fabrics. Um, and so you have this very different um, set of material compositions. Um, however, combining them allows you to address um, problems related to adhesion. So the soft elastomer or um, the silicon rubber allows us to have Van der Waals forces bring the material into contact over short distances. Then the, the carbon fiber and the stiff carbon fiber fabric allows us to distribute forces across that whole interface of the PDMS very effectively. Rather than focusing in on certain defects or edges of our adhesive, it allows us to distribute it. And so that allows us to take advantage of these really weak Van der Waals forces um, by um, 
coupling many of them to act or across a large area to act together. Yeah, so that's one example in technology that we've um, worked on here. But I, I think there are, um, you know, lots of other examples. We have um, some work going on in collaboration with uh, Professor Ryan Hayward's group, um, where we're working on some electroadhesion concepts and, you know, being able to have a system that you have different regions that can be electrically active or electrically active combined with other ones that are uh, maybe neutral or only rely upon indirect secondary forces. I think having multiple um, mechanisms for adhesion is very advantageous. It's actually something we see in nature a lot where they will use and have multiple ways of attaching to a surface. Bacteria, for example, mm. um, use this quite easily um, or readily. And um, I think from an engineering point of view, we want to come in with the same approach that some areas may be electrically active, some surfaces may not be, and we want to have multiple mechanisms to maximize the adhesion. So multiple material um, solutions are, are certainly key. Mm -hmm. Maybe since you close the few question, I want to ask you maybe when you take advantage of morphology, for example, if there's something maybe sounds to you or maybe non interesting, not interesting, for example, buckling, I don't know if there's other example in this line, maybe with view it not interesting, but maybe later on, maybe it's very beneficial for the design. Do you have any examples that sometimes we view this mechanism just not interesting, but turns out had a purpose for the design? Maybe example from mm -hmm. evolution nature to apply to fabrication engineering, for example. Yeah, so let me um, ask, I mean, the first one, and I think you mentioned it, is really buckling and surface buckling. I don't know if you would like, I mean, we've worked on that quite a bit, and um, I can talk about that as, a, mm -hmm. as an example, or would you like me to move beyond that example? Yeah, it's okay. You can do whatever you want. Feel free. Okay. Yeah, so I think surface um, wrinkling and buckling. Um, so for the listeners, let me describe what, what this is. Um, so if you have a thin a thin sheet um, and just press on it from like, a, for example, a sh thin sheet of paper and you press on it from the edges, the paper doesn't stay flat. It'll bow up or bow down. It'll bend up and down. It prefers to bend rather than actually compress or become uh, shorter. Now, if you take that thin sheet of paper and attach it to a piece of rubber or something soft, a piece of foam and compress it, the paper still wants to bend up but the, the foam underneath wants to compress. And so this gives rise, it'll actually find a compromise and it'll wrinkle and set up a, a whole series of wrinkles that are very uh, precisely defined in terms of its their size and, um, and curvature. And um, this phenomenon is from an engineering point of view, when we were, when I was being trained as a civil engineer many, many years ago, you were taught to avoid the, the wrinkling or buckling, it's often called buckling mode um, because it's an unstable form, okay? Um, you want to make your material so they don't buckle. That's what we were taught as engineers. However, um, coming back to your question, nature has used buckling in many ways to define very functional surfaces. Um, one of the examples, um, it's not so functional maybe, or we don't realize the function so much, but it's our fingerprints. Our fingerprints are actually made and develop in a, in a way where the outermost layer, the epidermis actually starts being um, compressed relative to the, um, 
the basal layer or the underlying layer, and this gives rise to the formation of our fingerprints. Um, now, in nature, they also use buckling to define many other um, um, functional forms. In fact, a, a project that we're working on right now um, with um, Michelle Milankovic and Professor Beverly Glover. Um, professor Beverly Glover is a professor at, at Cambridge University, and Professor Michelle Milankovic is a, a professor at Geneva University. Um, we're understanding how surface wrinkling or buckling it's actually used on the on the outer layers of flower petals to help attract um, certain insects, so um, bees, for example, because of their optical properties and special optical properties, or even on the scales of certain lizards, um, as Professor Milankovic is studying, the wrinkles will develop to give rise to different diffractive colors and for different purposes. Um, so this is what I'm coming to is this, this underlying feature of buckling or surface wrinkling, as engineers, we are taught to avoid. However, nature has found ways to exploit this for optical properties or adhesion properties. And so our group, as well as many others around the world, have used surface buckling and features to actually make functional materials. And not only are they very functional, but they are actually made in a, a very um, convenient method or way that can actually minimize the amount of energy that goes into creating um, material structures. So there's other benefits as well as their function um, in terms of the energy used to, to create these um, surfaces. So I think that's a nice example um, um, to, the, to the question of how the, something unexpected yeah. maybe turns out to be something really nice. That's wonderful. I don't know if you have any other examples as well uh, beyond that. Maybe if you have. Yeah, uh, um, I can. Um, I'm sure that we have a, oh, um, this is fairly specific to our research group, um, but, it, but it is a nice example of where many years ago, um, we were trying to place and develop a, a coding method for placing um, five nanometer nanoparticles inside of three nanometer polymer films. So if the nanoparticle is thicker than the nano, uh, the polymer film, how, where does it, how do you, how do you place that in there and how do you get to be stable? When the students started working on this problem, um, only a few weeks after he um, was in the lab trying different processes, he started to discover that the nanoparticles would all form lines, um, very systematic lines. Um, and these lines, um, seem to have very unique properties, uh, these in the lines of nanoparticles. Um, so we've, since then, we've started to understand why the line developed, which is actually, it, it develops due to the same reasons why a coffee ring develops when you let a drop of coffee dry on your, on your plate or at the bottom, bottom of your um, coffee cup. Um, but we've now been able to use that to develop a whole new system of of nanoparticle and polymer-based ribbons and mesoscale filaments, um, which are giving rise to some really new optical, mechanical, and electrical uh, material. So it's one of these things where we, at first, it was not anywhere near what we expected. Um, but for the last 12 years, we've started now developing this whole new um, area of mesoscale polymer and design. Um, so it's, it's pretty exciting, at least from my perspective. Great. 
Maybe I want to ask you about the growth and the sympathy. That's something also your focus, but what maybe challenge when it comes to maybe if we speak about designing material that can have growth, for example, what yeah, are the challenges? Yeah. Um, in terms of handling growth, or, um, to me, one of the biggest challenges is understanding the transport um, problem of bringing new material to a, a growing system and how to convert energy from the, your environment into the material form that you want. Um, you know, I think as engineers, we can develop systems to bring certain materials, but nature seems to take what's, what it is around and use it in different ways. Um, and I think that is a challenge that with growth in particular, like if we really want materials to be able to grow, um, is how to handle that transport issue. Um, and, and use materials in unexpected ways. The other, the other thing about growth is, is how to self-limit it. So to stop it at a given size or given shape um, and have the material maybe think or the system work with the material to find the right size to handle the stresses that the material are developing under growth. So there should be natural balances there, but I think of how to engineer that um, is not really well understood yet. Um, so I think it's issues of transport and material energy conversion and self-limiting um, kind of growth and shape definition um, or size and, and shape definition that at least get me very interested um, in terms of mm -hmm. tackling those problems in the future. Maybe a few questions left. The first one, I want to ask you what may be the other question do you think very challenging uh, for you. And also, if there's something also, do you disagree with a view in the design of bio-inspired adhesive material? Or if there's any views also you, you disagree with, you don't think that's not the way to go. I, will, I don't know if you have this view as well, disagree on something. Um, no, I don't, I mean, so I'll, uh, again, I'll, I'll come back to a, a pretty, um, general response at first. And I would say I would not disagree with any approaches out there. I think people, I think scientists and engineers that are working on all these problems. Um, I was on a, a, a call earlier today with some different scientists and, um, you know, it was reminded we're all, we're all part of the same community and we're all trying to understand the complexities of science and the, the world around us and try to make the, the world a better place. Um, so I, I think we all are doing that and um, every approach, even if it looks at first to be maybe not the approach that a particular person would take, we probably all learn from it in some way. Um, and I think if we understand how to use that data, it's probably for the better. Um, now, with that being said, <laughs> I do have um, a, a couple, you know, I'll say philosophical choices that we espouse or really um, try to follow in our group. And uh, I'll say this, and it's coming back to some of my first points today, that we try to look at the bigger evolutionary history and the context around which different material solutions are, are offered or developed in nature, rather than focusing in on a particular one organism or one species at a particular instance in time to find our inspiration. We think that is fairly dangerous sometimes if we're trying to find a general solution 
to a technology or for a technology that is very different than what that organism has been developed for. So in order to get the underlying principles, I think you have to look at the full evolution and the full ecology um, and the full environment around different organisms. Um, and so I, I, I do not um, try to bring to my research group anyway finding one example and mimicking that um, directly, I think that can be a, um, it may not have as broad of a, um, the, the knowledge that's developed out of that approach may not be as broadly applicable. Um, but so that's one general thing that we try to do, at least in my research group. Wait, what makes you fulfilled and satisfied in being? And what you're doing? What makes you fulfilled? satisfied yeah what makes me fulfilled um there are two answers and they're both related um, the first one that came to mind is working with students and um, at all levels um, whether it's at the elementary school level or up through the phd and postdoctoral level i love working with students and trying to understand how to explain concepts to them that they may be hearing for the first time and then watching how they use those concepts to teach me something that I haven't seen before. I, I love that process. Um, and that's one reason why I went into um, academia. Um, and the related part of that is I, I really love and value the people um, that I get to work with beyond even the students. Um, so this goes even beyond science, but science and engineering, I'll say just to keep it, um, kind of constrained in a bit. Science and engineering is this amazing community around the world that you can literally land in any country around the world and start talking to another scientist and engineer and you have something in common and um, it's just a, a really cool experience. And um, so that, that fulfills me in many ways. Wonderful. Last question. I don't know if you received any advice. Maybe it was a life-changing advice. Maybe in the career or life, stick to your mind. Very valuable advice. Yeah, one, um, I have, I've received many from many, I've benefited from so many great mentors. Um, but I remember a, a, um, a quote from my um, PhD advisor, um, Ken Scholl at, at Northwestern University. And he said at one point, I, I was talking to him about whether, you know, we should, his philosophy, or I was asking him about whether we should, um, write this paper or, or present this talk because we were, you know, should we be worried about being scooped? It's a very common thing and, and um, that people worry about. And, and he said, it's better to be known as a person with many ideas and to share all your ideas whenever you have them than to be known as a person with no ideas. Um, and so this is advice that I always think about and I try to share with all of the students and people around me. I want to be known as a person with ideas um, more than a person that has none. Um, so that's, that's, I think, some pretty strong advice. Yes, that's inspiring. Any final words? Uh, I don't know if you have any final words for me. So for what's the community or people listening to you? Any final words like to say? No, I just thank you. Um, thank you for taking the time and thank you for asking these questions and sharing um, sharing this with everybody. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. It's such an honor having you here again. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you.